Pray with me, Father in heaven, we pray what we just sang, that you would take our lives, that we would be consecrated, devoted uh, to you and to you alone in these minutes, that you would take our, our, our listening, our, our ears, our minds, our thinking, uh, our wills, our very hearts, God, and take them and mold them uh, according to your will, to your purpose, to your word. And so we pray that you would do that even now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Hebrews in chapter 13. I just want to read two verses, verses 15 and 16. Hebrews in chapter 13, please. Hear the word of God. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruits of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, as we come to this chapter 13, of course, we're coming to the final words of of this message, his, his purpose in writing all of this is to, is to encourage them to persevere in the faith. Um, he, he wants them to continue to listen uh, to what they've heard and to act upon it, to continue to hear the gospel and to live it out. Uh, he doesn't want to, them to become a dull of hearing or hard of heart. Uh, he doesn't want them to be deceived uh, by sin. Um, rather, he wants them to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. In a word, he wants them to live by faith. He wants them to continue to trust in Jesus. And so, uh, if that is his purpose, then his theme has been to tell us about Jesus. He wants to put before them Christ to say, consider Jesus. Consider Christ. He's trustworthy. He's all-sufficient. For he learned in the Old Covenant that to have a relationship with God, it meant that we would need someone who is pure and holy to represent us before God. Our problem is sin. Uh, God is holy. For us to, to be in relationship with Him, therefore, we would need someone to go to Him who is holy, who is acceptable to God, to go to God for us on our behalf. And He would need to take with Him a substitute for us. Because the Bible teaches us, of course, that the wages of sin is death. And thus, the, the, the judgment, the payment, the punishment for our sin is to be separated from God. So if we're to live in the presence of God, there must be someone to stand for us on our behalf who is holy. And there must be a sacrifice that's made that pays the penalty for our sin. And of course, Jesus is that very one. He's that very one. He's that very representative for us. He's that very uh, sacrifice uh, for uh, our sins. He's the substitute. He's the representative. In fact, in Hebrews, in chapter 2, verse 17, uh, the author of Hebrews puts it like this of Jesus. He says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiations for the sins of the people. Uh, and so, uh, he did that. 
as our high priest, our representative. He went before God on our behalf. God accepted him because he was perfectly acceptable. And he took with him his own blood to pay for the penalty of our sins so that we could be uh, accepted uh, in him. In chapter 9, in verse 26, the middle of verse 26, uh, we read this. But as it is, he, that is Jesus, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice uh, of himself. And so he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Uh, and then chapter 10 and verse 11 puts it like this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Then verse 18 says this, Where there is forgiveness of these... There is no longer any offering for sin. So Jesus did it. So the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, he paid the price. He made the sacrifice. It was accepted. That's it. It is, in fact, uh, finished. Trust him and trust no one else. Not only that, but he is our high priest. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 23 puts it like this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he, that is Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. In other words, he's our perfect sacrifice. He's our perfect high priest. He's exactly what we need. And since he is exactly what we need, the author of Hebrews says, trust him, live by faith in him, Continue to persevere in Him. Don't anything. Don't let anything turn you aside from Jesus. And so as chapter 13 opens up, he says, don't even let the threats of other people uh, keep you from following Jesus. You remember chapter 13 and verse 6, uh, he puts it like this, so we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? In other words, don't let... Uh, the threats of people, even though they're against you, even though they may threaten you with, with, with persecution, even though they may threaten you with death, uh, don't allow them to keep you from following Christ. Because they really can't do anything to you. Because they have no authority over you, but the authority that's been given to them by God. And so if they're coming after you, trust that God is with you. Trust that God in His goodness knows that's happening and has ordained it to take place. Trust that God is good, and in His goodness, He's ordained that to happen, and it's taking place. Know that God is wise, and in His wisdom, He's ordained that, thus it's taking place. Know that God is powerful, and nothing can thwart His purpose in you. So don't be afraid of them, because they're not the sovereign ones. God is the sovereign ones, one, so trust in Him. And so He says, continue to love each other. 
And in those days, that was incredibly risky behavior. Uh, it's only risky for us because we get our feelings hurt and all that sort of nonsense. And it's costly and it requires uh, sacrifice and, and, and all that. But in those days, for Christians to love each other publicly meant they were being marked out as Christians and therefore could be persecuted. So he says, continue to love each other in the face of the threats that you're getting. Continue to offer hospitality to Christians who you don't even know. All you know is that they profess faith in Christ. Continue to offer hospitality to them. Because you realize that the strangers among you are likely to be those who are fleeing persecution from another place. And so offer them hospitality, even though by taking them in, it may mean that you'll get persecuted as well. Go to the prisons where there are Christians who have been arrested because they're, they're faithful to Christ and visit them. Go to those Christians who have been mistreated, who have lost, lost their jobs or whatever because they're believers in Christ. Go to them, identify with them. Don't let anybody shake you from following Christ by, because of their threats. Continue to live faithful in marriage. Continue to live out a life of, 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 of sexuality and sexual intimacy that's, that's, that's approved by God. And when you do that, understand that people are going to know you're a Christian because other people don't live this way. And it could be dangerous for you. You could be ostracized by the community. But, but, but don't let that keep you from following after Christ. Watch how you spend your money. Don't be dependent upon your wealth for your security. Understand that it all comes from God. He's the provider. And therefore, be free of that. So that if anybody threatens to take your stuff, it won't be a real threat. Because you know that he'll take care of you. He'll provide for you. So don't let the threats of people keep you, discourage you, cause you to turn away from Christ. And not only that, then he goes on the verses to follow, verses 7 through 14, which we took up last week. I'm talking fast because I'm going to lose my voice sometime today, maybe. And so I want to make sure at least, you, you know, it's enough for now. Um, but verses 7 through 14, uh, he says that, uh, that not only should they not let the threats of human beings keep them from following Christ, but also they shouldn't let false teaching keep them from following after Christ. He says, because you need to realize that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is, what he did in his life and death still holds today. He is still the sacrifice. He is still the high priest. There is no other way to God except through him. That took place in the past. It exists today. It will be true forever. You can bank on it. So don't go anywhere else. To, for your heart to be strengthened by grace, you need to go in faith to Jesus. There is no other way. And so continue uh, in that way, he says trusting in him. And so then the question is raised, because the author of Hebrews is, is, is sort of playing off one word, one concept at a time, and he's in this idea of sacrifice. And so the question then is, for Christians then, is there any sacrifice, are there any sacrifices left for us to make? Well, on the one hand, he's already answered that question by saying, of course not, the sacrifice for sin has already been made. Uh, we, we needn't make that again. Jesus did it once and for all time. There isn't any other sacrifice that's necessary. When he said it, it's finished, it was. That was the end of sacrifices. That was the payment for sin. It was done. He is the propitiation for our sins. That is, he, he, he's the one who did it. He satisfied the wrath of God. 
All those other sacrifices to the old covenant, we know, were simply shadows of the reality of Jesus' death. Right? When we see a shadow, we know there's a reality. We know there's something here, there's light coming this way, and then there's this reality and it casts a shadow. If Jesus is here, the shadow of him, of his death, were the death of those animals. There was just a shadow. But when the reality came, then that was the end of all those sacrifices. He filled them up. And so we needn't sacrifice anymore. So to that degree, no, there aren't any other sacrifices for sins to be made. But notice when he puts, how he puts it in verse 15 about sacrifices that we must make now. He says, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruits of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So he says, yes, there are still offerings that we make. But notice that these offerings aren't atoning sacrifices. These offerings aren't to get us forgiveness from sins. That's already taken place in Jesus. These offerings are offerings that we make because we have been forgiven. They're the result of what Jesus did. These are, these are reasonable acts of service, if you will, for us. These are reasonable things given what uh, Jesus has done. Peter puts it like this. You turn to First Peter in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, As you come to him, that is to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's, you see, the image that he's given to us as believers in Christ is he's saying, in a sense, we're, we're a temple, the very dwelling place of God. We're a spiritual house. If you take each one of us and connect us all together, what we are is a spiritual house. We're like living stones, one placed upon the other, with Christ holding us all together. Now, a temple is to be the very dwelling place of God, which is why Paul could write in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to the whole church in Corinth, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit because he dwells in you. So Peter's saying, listen, you're, you're this temple. The Spirit of God dwells in you. You're the very dwelling place of God. And then he kind of tweaks that image a little bit and he says, now, you're a... a, a, a a holy priesthood, and you're to make spiritual sacrifices. That is, sacrifices that have their origin in a work of the Holy Spirit in you. The word spiritual is used in a variety of ways in our culture these days. Uh, uh, normally just means fuzzy. Uh, but, 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 but in the context of Scripture, when the Bible talks about being spiritual, it's speaking of those things which are of the Holy Spirit, those things which change us in such a way as to enable us to be related rightly with God and to know Him. That's being spiritual. Being spiritual is knowing God. And knowing God only comes by way of a work of the Holy Spirit where He gives us new life, new birth. 
And so these sacrifices that we're to make are, are spiritual ones. That is, they're the result of a work of the Spirit in us that's forgiven, that's caused us to have sins forgiven and to be justified, that is, declared righteous by God and accepted by Him. And so he says, now this, the sacrifices that you offer individually and collectively as the people of God, as this holy temple, as the spiritual house, <clears throat> are offered because of what Christ has done. So we're not atoning for sin, we're not paying for sin, but we're responding to the fact that he has paid for our sins. And thus, we live in such a way that our whole lives are to be offerings unto God. And notice how the author of Hebrews, back in Hebrews 13, puts it. It says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise and the sacrifices of good works and sharing with others what we have. Still we go through Christ. Any of the praise, any of the thanks that we give to God, any of the works that we do, if they're going to be accepted by God and acceptable to Him, they still must go through Christ. Meaning that we acknowledge that the only reason that we're able to say thank you to God is because we've received gifts from Him. And the only reason we've able to receive gifts from Him is because we're rightly connected to Christ. That call to worship or profession of faith, I guess I called it today, that we read out of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you understand that the only reason that you and I know God, the only reason that you and I have any blessings at all from God is because of Jesus? Because he died and lived. He died for our sins, gave up his righteousness so that we could be accepted by God, so that God could bless us. Without Christ, you see, all that's left for us is judgment and condemnation, wrath and hell and all that. But because of Jesus, you see, because we're in him, then we have received every spiritual blessing. And so then the thanks that we make, the praise that we give to him for who he is and what he's done, goes through Christ. We don't go around him. But we go through him because our, our praise is always thank you for what he did so that we could receive from you. Thank you for who he is so that we could. Now, do you realize then that when an American has something good happened to him or her, and simply then casually, or even in some heartfelt way, says, thank God. That thanks is not acceptable to God unless it's offered through Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that if a Christian just says, thank God, you have to tack on in Jesus' name and all the other magic words to make it acceptable. That's not the point, you see. The point is, was the heart of the person because you see, other than, you see, if it's not offered through Jesus, then again, it's just sort of self-righteousness. It's saying, thank God, but there's a sense in which, oh, I must deserve in some way this blessing from God. When a Christian says, thanks be to God, or praise be to God, what we're saying is, because of Jesus, we're grateful. 
because we know that we have no right to any blessing at all unless it comes through Jesus, right? When a Muslim says, praise be to Allah, that is not acceptable to God, all right? When someone who is Jewish says, thanks be to God, and doesn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, that is not acceptable to God. And you can say, some may say, well, you Christians are awfully snobbish. <laughs> you're saying that unless you're a Christian, you can't even say thank you to God. And, and again, it isn't our snobbery, I don't think, that's causing us to say that. First, it's the scripture. Second, it's the exact opposite of snobbery. We're simply saying we don't even have the right to say thank you to God apart from Jesus. He's the only one who enables us to receive blessings from God, and he's the only one then who enables us to acknowledge thanks to God. So it isn't snobbery, it's really the opposite. It's saying we're completely unworthy of anything from God, and we're completely unworthy to express ourselves to God, even in thankfulness, apart from Jesus. Do you see how core he is? in who we are. And that's true of our works as well. The author of Hebrews says, Through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruits of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for uh, such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We can only offer up things that we do to God through Jesus. Acknowledging him. Saying, in essence, that God, I'm going to do this because it's your command. And I understand that uh, I wouldn't trust you, I wouldn't receive strength from you to do this, if it weren't for what Jesus has done. And so I'm going to offer this work to you, I'm going to do this, I'm going to share with someone, I'm going to love them, because of what you have done in me, and I want to do it for your glory. And so as we come then, you see, in Jesus' name, that's in a sense what we're saying. We're doing this because of him, his work in us, and his worth. You know, we have this wonderful passage of scripture that many of us live on, especially in times of difficulty, and we should live on this verse when we're in difficulty, and it's Romans 8, 28. God works together. God works for good all things. Let me get this right. God works together for good all things for those who love him, and are they called according to his purpose? And so we know in the life of a believer, we actually live with the certainty that good is going to come to us from everything. Everything ultimately turns out good or for our good to us. That doesn't mean everything is inherently good. People sin against us, injustice, our own sin, that's all bad. But we know in living through Jesus, faith in him, that God's going to work in such a way, his purposes will not be thwarted, even by our own sin or the sins of others. And he'll work in such a way that good will come to us. And that good is going to be that ultimately we'll be conformed to the image of Christ. In every circumstance, we live 
without assurance. That is not a license to go out and sin and go, well, that's cool. You know, I'm just going to be really bad and then grace will abound. And Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 6. Read that passage. He says, you're an idiot for thinking that. All right? So if you understood the gospel, you wouldn't even be thinking that thought. So if you thought that thought, feel bad. Now, this is the license. It's an assurance. It's God saying to your mind, and nothing will thwart my purposes in you. And so I'm going to work all things together for good in your situation and in your life. Now please understand that for someone who doesn't live by faith in Christ, nothing works together for good. It's impossible. Because even the good that they do is self-righteousness and will lead to condemnation. And so all of our lives must be related to God through Jesus, in Jesus' name. We use that expression. We pray. It's a fine expression. Uh, we, use, uh, we should use There's an interesting new book on prayer by Brian Chappell, who's the president of Covenant Seminary. And the book is entitled Praying Backwards. Great title. I haven't read the book yet, so I can't really recommend it or not, although he's a good guy. But I like the title. It's an apt title, meaning we should begin our prayer in Jesus' name, not end our prayer in Jesus' name. And of course, we do begin our prayers in Jesus' name as Christians. That's the attitude of our hearts. We just say it at the end because I don't know why we say it at the end. But uh, we, we, we say it at the end. Uh, but, but that's the attitude. We're coming in Jesus' name. What do we mean by that? We mean, God... I'm expecting you to hear me. I'm confident that you're going to hear me. Not because I'm worthy to be heard. Not because I'm sinless. None of that. But because of Jesus. I'm coming to you in his name. I'm acknowledging his name. I'm confessing his name. And therefore I'm trusting that you're going to receive my prayer and accept it. Because I of myself am a sinner worthy of your condemnation only. But in Jesus I realize my sins are forgiven. I've received your righteousness. I'm accepted by you. So I come to you in Jesus name. Not my own. We're to live in Jesus name. So our whole lives are to be lived acknowledging the name of Jesus, confessing the name of Jesus, doing everything, saying everything, in essence, through him, through our lives and through our lips. Everything else would simply be self-righteous. So just very quickly on this verse 15, this sacri- these sacrifices of praise that we're to make, uh, we know that... This is very consistent with the scripture. If you go back into the book of Leviticus, which we won't at this moment in time, but there was a praise offering, a thank offering. It wasn't to atone for sin, but it was simply to acknowledge the fact that atonement was made by God for us, and therefore it was a worshipful thing, saying thank you to God for providing all that I need, for providing my spiritual needs, for providing my physical needs. A thank offering, a praise offering. And the psalmist, of course, lead us in prayer Uh, All the time, Um, if you read through the Psalms, and I would urge you to to pray through the Psalms every day to at least read one and to pray through it as as the psalmist will help you express your emotion. Just notice some of these. Psalm 22, which interestingly begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the middle of the psalm, the psalmist is saying this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation I will praise you. In other words, I'm going to declare uh, your praises. Then in Psalm chapter 50, 
and verse 23. He puts it like this. He says, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. In other words, the one who says, Thank you, God, because of who you are and what you've done. Glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And there you have them both. There you have this, this praise from his lips and this prayer praise from his uh, life as well. Psalm 107 in verse 21. The psalmist puts it like this. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. In other words, what we should be proclaiming in every circumstance, in every situation, is the goodness of God, the great love of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God. The call to worship I read this morning was Psalm 96. Listen to some of this again. It begins by saying, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. And when you bless the name of the Lord, to bless simply means to say good things about. So if you bless someone you're, you're, and give them a blessing, then you're saying something good to them. It's, it's like a benediction. It's a good word. And so when we bless the Lord, what, we, what the psalmist means is we're saying good things about God. To him, uh, sing to the Lord, bless his name. And, and what are we doing? We're telling of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and so forth. Verse 6, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So he says, ascribe uh, to the Lord, O family of peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering coming to his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. You see, the way that we acknowledge his name, the way that we confess his name, is in every circumstance and in every situation, we say the Lord is good. Look how he is good. We say the Lord is faithful. Look how he is faithful. We say the Lord is wise. Look at his wisdom. We say the Lord reigns. Now, in some situations, that's quite difficult to do because some situations are, are horrible. When 9-11 hits, when, when hurricanes strike, when, when people die, when there's injustice and all those kinds of things. When the report comes back from the doctor and it's a bad report, what do we do? He says, in the midst of my people, what I want you to do, the way that you offer a sacrifice of praise, is you... Worship my wisdom and my goodness and my power and my faithfulness and my strength. And you declare that the Lord reigns. Again, sometimes that's easy to do. Sometimes when, when, when you've just had great blessing, and we can read this in the Psalms. If you read the Psalms, and I don't have time to illustrate all this this morning, but if you read through the Psalms over and over again, what I think you'll find as the psalms worship and praise God, the psalmist worship and praise God. And there are times when they're worshiping and praising, and you get this sense, it's sort of spontaneous, because good things have just happened. 
They've just been delivered. And they're going, oh, this is awesome. You know, they're just praising the Lord. It's like this unencumbered worship. But there are other times when life is difficult. And the psalmist uses expressions like, I feel laid low in the dust. That means I'm eating dirt. Everything's dry. There's nothing. I don't, my eyes are water. Everything feels horrible physically, spiritually, and otherwise. And you read a psalm like that, and if it doesn't resolve itself and you don't get a sense of deliverance, still there is this sense of, of worship and praise to acknowledge the goodness and the wisdom and the steadfast love of God. For instance, in Psalm 42, we, we find a situation somewhat like that. Verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? Right? I mean, when sadness comes, when difficulties come, when bad news comes, when you're watching the news and you see injustice, when you're watching the news and you see people die and all those kinds of things, that, that what echoes from our culture, what even echoes sometimes from our own hearts is, where is your God? But the author of Hebrews says that we're to offer sacrifices of praise through Jesus continually. Not just sometimes, but, but continually. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians that we're to do this in all circumstances. Paul writes in the book of Romans, for all things. Now, not all things meaning we're thankful for sin, but we're thankful to God, even as all things come to us, because we know his redeeming power. And so when the world and when our own heart says, where is God? Where was he when that took place? Why isn't he taking care of you? Verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and, and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festival. In other words, I remember... I remember God. I remember the times of joy. But not only the times of joy, I remember those times of joy when we're remembering the salvation of God, when we remember His promises to us, when we remember what He's done for us. And then He goes on to speak to His own soul. So He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. You see? And so, in those times when we find it difficult, we don't seem to have the words to say to acknowledge the goodness and the love and, and the wisdom and all of that of God in the midst of a difficult situation. We need to speak to our own souls and we need to go back and remember, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus for he chose us in him, in him, before the foundations of the world. Doesn't that amaze you to think that before anything was made, God took you as a believer in Christ now. He took you and put you in Christ so that all the blessings of Christ could be yours. I don't have a category in my brain for that other than just to sit and worship. Why have you been blessed? Because you're in Christ. Why are you in Christ? Because since before the foundations of the world, he put you there. 
How could you even think that thought if it wasn't given to you by him? In love, he predestined you to be adopted as sons. Meaning, he blessed you by putting you in Christ so that these blessings would be yours. He took you, put you there so that you would be holy and blameless in his sight. And to get there, he set out a destiny so you would be adopted as his sons. Therefore, when Christ died, he died for you so that your sins would be forgiven, so you would be redeemed and you would have forgiveness of sins. And we begin to think about that, you see. And then we think, ah, the blessing and the wisdom and the power and the love of God. And then when he says, I work together all things for good to those who love me and are the called according to my purpose, he says, my purpose for you is to conform you to the image of Jesus, to make you like him. Then in all circumstances we can say, if this is conforming me to the image of Jesus, if this is moving me on to being holy and blameless in your sight, all right, he is good and he is wise and he is sovereign. And so I can acknowledge him even in the midst of this with my lips and so we speak to our own souls and we say hope in God you idiot right hope in God what are you doing hope in God I had this this week one of my dearest friends in all the world called me last week and he said he had viral encephalitis he said it kills 70% of the people I don't know all these stats these are things he gave me if it goes untreated the next word out of his mouth was But in this, I see the goodness and the wisdom of God. And he went on then to describe to me what had taken place uh, in his life as he found that he had this. And as he went to the hospital in the emergency room, and as he spent 10 days in the hospital and all that kind of stuff, he recounted to me over and over again. I didn't interrupt him, and I said, well, so why is this bad? It was bad. And could be bad. But as he acknowledged very sincerely, very honestly... As a believer in Christ, the wisdom and the goodness and the power and the sovereignty of God, that's what was on his lips. And so that's what we're to do. We're so in Christ that he says, in all circumstances, in every situation, I want you to acknowledge me. I want you to tell of my salvation. And this isn't some begrudging, dutiful, praise the Lord anyway kind of nonsense. Because you may have to work your heart to this place. And the way that you work your heart to this place is by going back to those places and going back to those passages which tell you of the great salvation of God and His great plan for you even in the midst of this difficulty so that then you can see His wisdom and proclaim it. And you may be simply proclaiming this by faith based on His promise To be able to say, God is good to me. God is wise in his dealings in my life. God is strong and powerful and gracious. And his steadfast love endures forever. And again, this isn't superstition. Oh, if I say this, everything will get better. This isn't a positive confession. So if I say this, then then it'll be better. No, this is the truth. We're simply speaking the truth. And we can only speak that truth through Jesus as we know him. But then it's important for us to realize too that any of the good that we do, that we're to respond in in doing things which are good. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. The apostle writes, for you are God's workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, why did he save you? When he saved you, uh, I read before we um, sang the second set of songs, that we might declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We do that with our lips, and we do that with our lives. He said, okay, now here's what I have for you to do. I've got good for you to do. This doesn't earn your salvation. It just simply means you're saved. This is what I've, I've, I've prepared in advance for you. When a person comes to faith in Christ, and a person is saved by Jesus, the reason is so that that life can be changed and transformed. And he says, now I want you to do good. Not self-righteously, but in dependence upon Jesus. His righteousness played out, worked out through you. His holiness growing and manifesting itself in you. His image being recreated in you. That's what's to be taking place in the course of, in the course of our lives. In fact, as Paul writes to Titus, he puts it like this over and over again. Chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what we're to be about. This is no casual thing. We're to live in such a way that in every circumstance we acknowledge Christ with our lips and speak of his goodness and his love and his wisdom and his might and his splendor, and his majesty. And we're to live our lives in such a way that what we do reflects him. We're to be a people zealous for doing good. In chapter 3, verse 8, he puts it like this in Titus. He says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to, in to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to, vo to devote themselves to good works. We're not saved by them. We're saved for them. Right? Verse 14. And then our people learn to devote themselves to good works uh, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So that's the very fruit of our lives. Good works to share with those in need. And that's what we're to be about. And we need to do all of that through Jesus because of what he's done in us and for the sake of reflecting him so that he receives the honor from it so that others will say thank you to him what are we to see from this I think we're to see from this that Jesus is everything let's pray Father in heaven I pray for me and for us that we never cease acknowledging Christ, never cease reflecting upon and realizing who he is and everything that he's done and who we are because of him. God, never let us forget that, never let us minimize that. May that always be in the forefront of our hearts, minds, that we will always know that everything we have is 
because of Him and everything we do is through Him and for Him and to Him. And this we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to stand, please, for the benediction. As you do, I remind you there are elders available to pray, so please uh, take advantage of that. The uh, uh, response to the benediction uh, is, Praise be to God, your lips, which is the English translation of the word hallelujah, by the way. But we just thought we'd just spell it out today. And praise be to God. And then the last word, amen, uh, doesn't mean the end. It means yes, so be it. I want my life to be lived in such a way that my lips acknowledge his name and my my life reflects it. Please receive this as God's benediction unto him. He was able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, praise be to God. Amen.